Most of you will recall that we are in process of considering the words of the Apostle Paul in the Epistle to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 5 to 8, 5, 6, 7, and 8, in the 8th chapter of the Epistle to the Romans. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded, or to have the mind of the flesh, is death. But to be spiritually minded, or to have the mind of the Spirit, is life and peace. Because the mind of the flesh, or the carnal mind, is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, we began our consideration of these four verses last uh, Friday evening. And uh, we are dealing with them in the following way. It's essential that I should remind you of our approach uh, to this. It's uh, a new subsection in this uh, chapter. It follows on from that first uh, subsection, uh, which consists of the first four verses. Or, if you like, you can take the first verse on its own, and then verses 2, 3, and 4 together. However, here we are dealing with a, a further statement, which follows from that first one. And we are suggesting that the apostle here is concerned to prove and to establish what he had just been saying, particularly in that last phrase in the fourth verse, to us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now, the righteousness of the law, he says, uh, can be and will be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And now he is going on to show why uh, this righteousness of the law can only be fulfilled in such people. And the way in which he does it is, as we saw last Friday at the beginning, is to compare and to contrast the non-Christian and the Christian. Now there is the first point which we've got to be quite clear about. The apostle here is not contrasting a poor sort of Christian, what is frequently called the carnal Christian, with a spiritual Christian. That isn't what he's doing at all. He is comparing a man who's not a Christian at all with a man who is a Christian, with any Christian, with every Christian. That's the basic point which we must hold clear then in our minds. Now, we spent last Friday evening in considering what he's got to tell us about the non-Christian. And you remember the points were these. He minds the things of the flesh. He is, first of all, governed by the flesh. He is after the flesh. And so he minds the things of the flesh. He is also in a state of death, of spiritual death. And that is why he does mind the things of the flesh. Not only that, we found also that he is at enmity against God. And this is true of every man who is not a Christian. If we are not Christians, we are at enmity against God. However good and moral, however religious we may be, however much we may talk about believing in God, if we are not regenerate, we are at enmity against God. Then we are not subject to the law of God. And still more disastrous, we cannot be. 
it is impossible for the natural men ever to desire God or his law or to live according to the law. Neither indeed can they. So he sums it all up by saying, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. It's a sheer impossibility. The righteousness of the law obviously cannot be fulfilled in such people. Well, that's why he's already said in verse 4 that it is only fulfilled in those who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Well, now then, having done that, having looked at the negative, we now come to the positive. And here, where the, the apostle puts before us this uh, very remarkable and wonderful picture and description of the Christian man. And uh, we, we are going to look at it, not only that we may grasp the apostle's argument, but because there is no better way of discovering where we are and where we stand than to examine ourselves in the light of this kind of statement. Now let me ask you to bear another thing in your mind. The apostle's ultimate objective is to establish the certainty of the final full salvation of all who are in Christ. That's the fundamental proposition. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. There never will be. There never can be. That's what he's proving. And this is one of his subsidiary proofs. The man who is in Christ is saved and is eternally saved and safe because these things are true of him. Therefore, if we are concerned about our assurance of salvation as we all should be, because if we lack assurance, we lack joy. If we lack joy, our life is probably of a poor quality. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And it is the people who are most assured who show the greatest evidence of their salvation and of their sanctification. Very well then, let us hold all that in our minds. It's important from two standpoints, therefore, that we should consider this description of the Christian. That we may, I say, be quite sure that we are in this position at all and that we are not still after the flesh, but still more important, that we may have the assurance which is derived partly in this particular way and manner. Very well then, as we look at it, I again want to underline this point, this principle. What the Apostle says here applies to every Christian, not only to some Christians, not to some special Christians who've had a second experience, or a third, or a fourth, or a fifth experience. What he's saying here is true of anybody who is a Christian. You cannot be a Christian without this being true of you. Now that is, of course, finally made beyond any doubt at all by the statement of the ninth verse, where he begins to apply it and says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be, which means... Uh, assuming as I do and as I know to be true of you, that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Well, then to make it doubly certain, now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, well, he is none of him. He's not a Christian at all. He doesn't say that if he hasn't the Spirit of Christ, he's a poor Christian or a so-called carnal Christian. He says he's not a Christian. We really must get rid of this notion that in this chapter, the apostle is comparing two types of Christians. He is doing nothing of the sort. 
He is contrasting the non-Christian with anybody who is a Christian. Any Christian, all Christians. This really is basic to the whole argument which the Apostle is presenting. Well now then, what are the characteristics of the Christian? May God, the Holy Spirit, grant us understanding here. Not only I say that we may derive assurance, but that we may see something of the glory of being a Christian, the wonder of it all, the amazing thing that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. What is a Christian? Well, of course, the first thing is, he is the exact opposite of the non-Christian, the men we were looking at last week. But uh, that's not a way of describing a Christian it's done like that far too often. What you say about a Christian is not that he's just not a non-Christian. This is positive. It's essentially positive. And we must follow the apostle as he puts it to us in positive terms. It's a very wrong view of the Christian to say that he's a man who no longer does what he used to do. Of course, that's true. But that's the very least thing you say about him. That introduction. That's preamble. The thing to say about the Christian is essentially positive and gloriously positive. Now then, let us bear that in mind before we go any further. God forbid that we are giving the world an impression at a time like this that we are negations. That we are simply people who don't drink and who don't go to cinemas and who don't smoke and who don't do this, that and the other. What a terrible travesty of Christianity that is. With all the glorious positives that the New Testament has to put before us. Very well, let's come to them. The first thing he tells us about this man is that he now is one who is after the Spirit. They that are after the Spirit mind the things of the Spirit. Let us uh, remember here that the word after carries the same weight and the same shade of meaning as it did in what we were dealing with last week about the man who walks after the flesh. The suggestion is here that he is habitually dominated by. That's what after means. He is dominated habitually, constantly. That's the trend and tenor of his life. Well now then, that is the meaning here. The Christian is one whose life is dominated characteristically and habitually by the Spirit. What does he mean by the Spirit? Well, uh, here again it's important that we should be clear. He means the Holy Spirit. So you spell it with a capital S. He doesn't mean the human spirit. Now some people have gone astray there at that point. Imagining, you see, that uh, what the Apostle meant when he talked about the other men being after the flesh, that he was only referring to certain physical sins or sins committed by the body, various types of uh, debauchery or open, flagrant, obvious sin. Feeling that he means that by the flesh, they mean by the spirit, ah, the life of the mind, the intellect, uh, uh, the life of the so-called spirit of men that appreciates poetry and art and things like that. The spirit of men in contradistinction with his body, with his flesh. Well, we needn't waste any time over that because we were able to show conclusively last week that the flesh means... Not simply the body, the animal part, but it means the whole of a man's life as man is in a fallen state and uninfluenced by the Spirit of God. 
So the flesh included the mind and the intellect and the imagination and all men's cultural interests, politics and everything else. So here you see the apostle is, as is his custom, contrasting that kind of life which is after the flesh with this other life which is dominated by, controlled by, regulated by, determined by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, that is the first thing that is true of every Christian. You can't be a Christian at all unless this is true of you. Now, the apostle will say in verse 14 the same thing in a different way where he says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And that's true of all Christians again. If you're a Christian, you're a son of God. Well, if you're a son of God, you're led, he says, by the Spirit of God. So this is just another way of saying that. That the Christian's life is under the charge of the Holy Spirit, the third person in the blessed Holy Trinity. Right? Then the, the next thing is that uh, because of that, he, he is one who minds the things of the Spirit. I'm repeating what I said last week. This word carries the notion of deliberately setting your mind upon something. I said the way we use the word is we say to a busybody, mind your own business. Turn your mind from me to yourself. Mind your own business. Very well, there is this element of uh, deliberation and uh, it's a voluntary action. It is something that we do with our minds. We set them deliberately in that direction. Well, the man who is dominated by the Spirit sets his mind in a certain uh, direction. But it's... Uh, uh, a very big term, as we saw. It, it doesn't stop at the intellect. It includes the emotions, the desires, the feelings. So it is indicative uh, of a man's interest. It tells us about the things which attract him, which interest him. The things which he desires, the things which he pursues. Now, let me put it like this to you. We are going to look at these things, and that is where that section which I read from the first epistle to the Corinthians in the second chapter, especially from verse 6 to the end, is so important as a commentary upon this verse 5 that we're looking at this evening. You see, the other men we saw last week, when you put these things before him, they're foolishness to him. And that is true of everybody who's not a Christian. These things are foolishness to him. But they're not foolish to this man. He minds them. He desires them. He wants them. This is now his uh, first interest. This is his greatest interest. This is the matter which to him is of greatest concern. Now, I'm very anxious to put it like that because the position of the Christian is not that he comes to these things as a matter of duty. Or of habit or of custom. No, no, he minds them. Sets his mind upon them. He pursues them. This is his interest. We must give its full value to that word. Otherwise, it can almost be misleading for us. Very well then, here is the Christian. He is a man who, in that way, minds the things of the Spirit. What are these? 
here, once more, we must be very careful that we are quite clear in our definitions. What are these things of the Spirit? Let me again start with a negative. They're not merely things that belong to the realm of the intellect, I say once more. Let's get rid of that notion. Neither, I venture to add, does the apostle just mean that we are interested in religion. To be interested in religion and to be interested in the things of the spirit are not the same thing. There are many people who are interested in religion who have been antagonistic to the things of the spirit. The history of every great movement of the spirit proves that abundantly. The bitterest opponents of our blessed Lord were the Pharisees, the religious people. They were the bitterest opponents. And so it has continued to be. People who have been interested in religion have generally persecuted reformers more than anybody else. They've been much more hostile to reformers than the, have been the people who are just outside and who are not interested at all and unconcerned. So it's very important that we realize as we test ourselves that if we want to know whether we mind the things of the Spirit or not, it is not enough to say that we are interested in religion, not enough to say that we are members of churches. Because you can be a member of a church and hotly resent the things of the Spirit, as I'm hoping to show you. You may be very interested in religious organizations, in religious activities, denominations, activities of your particular church, and all those things, but it has nothing to do with minding the things of the Spirit. It can, as I say, be the very greatest enemy of them. May I go a step further? To mind the things of the Spirit does not mean an interest even in theology on its own, and stopping at that, because a man can be interested even in theology and Christian doctrine and not mind the things of the Spirit. What I mean is this, that a man can take up theology as a subject. Many have done so. They've made a career of it. And of course, they've enjoyed it and have been expert in it. But it may have nothing to do with the things of the Spirit at all. Again, it may be the greatest enemy of that. It is unfortunately possible, in other words, for a man with a natural mind to be able to grasp a theological system as a system, it's of no value to him at all. It can be the cause of his damnation, but it can be done. You can approach Christianity as an intellectual system, as a philosophy. And if you've got that sort of mind, you can be greatly interested in it. I've known men of whom that is true. That was their hobby. It was the thing which they enjoyed reading. As other men had other hobbies and pursuits, this happened to be theirs. And of course it can be one of the most fascinating pursuits, intellectual pursuits, that man is ever capable of. But a man can be interested thus and immersed in it and spend his life at it. And yet he can remain spiritually dead. Now, of course, as I'm going to show you, the man who minds the things of the Spirit in the right way is obviously interested in theology and doctrine all I'm, and in religion. All I'm saying at the moment is this, that a mere interest in any one of these things 
does not establish that we are minding the things of the Spirit. Let me give you one further negative. To mind the things of the Spirit does not mean that we are interested in religious phenomena. Here is a snare which has ensnared many souls, is ensnaring many at this present time. Because they're interested in religious phenomena, they think that they're minding the things of the Spirit. What, do I, what am I referring to? Well, I'm referring to experiences. There is a type of mind that is very interested in experiences. And again, I would add that there's nothing more interesting or fascinating. There's a great interest at the present time in these extrasensory phenomena, and so on. And when you get those exaggerated to the point of giving people remarkable experiences, well, there's a type of mind to whom that is a most fascinating study and pursuit. They're interested in human psychology, in the working of the human mind, in human behavior, in different types of human personality. It is, I say, a most fascinating study. And in the realm of religion, remarkable things have happened. You can read the lives of the saints, lives of great religious characters, and you'll find they've had particular experience, and it's a most fascinating study. But you can do it with a purely secular mind. You can do it with the mind of the flesh. There have been people, there have been people who have written along this line, not interested in the truth of God so much as in phenomena, facts and experiences, others in miracles, healing and things like that. You see, the cults, batten on this kind of thing. The cults are rarely kept going by this kind of thing. People who are interested in phenomena of any type or kind, especially in the realm of human personality and behavior and who are seeking happiness and joy and physical healing and things, they're ready prey for this kind of thing. And because it is done in Christian terminology or in a kind of spiritual atmosphere, where you are no longer dealing with physical medicine or something like that, but are invoking the unseen world and the unseen realm and some powers and forces that you can't bring down to the realm of mechanics. They assume they're already in the realm of the true spiritual. That is why mysticism can always be such a danger and can be perhaps the greatest enemy at times of the Christian truth and of the Christian faith. Very well, there are some negatives at any rate. To mind the things of the Spirit does not mean any of those things left to themselves in and of themselves. As long as they're concomitant with something else, it's all right. But if you merely stop at that, well, I say you haven't conformed to this test. What is the test then? Well, the test is, of course, the things of the Spirit are the things to which this Spirit, the Holy Spirit, always draws attention. In that uh, first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 2, the apostle called them, you remember in verse 11, the things of God. It's the same idea exactly. He says, For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him, even so the things of God, that's it, the things of God knoweth no man but uh, the spirit of God. Now then, what are these things? Well, the apostle also calls them the hidden mysteries. We speak the wisdom of God, he says, in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom. That's, those are the things of the Spirit. These are things are completely hidden to the world. The man who is after the flesh knows nothing about them, doesn't understand them. 
They are foolishness to him. That's the apostle's term. Now, I don't care how nice a man he is, nor how godly he may seem to be, nor how religious. They are foolishness to him. That's the apostle's statement. Neither can he, he says, to make it still more certain. He's at enmity against God. These things he knows nothing about. They're hidden mysteries, hidden wisdom. Right outside him, he's living in a different realm, but not so with the Christian. The Christian is a man who's been awakened to these things. God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. We see them. They're no longer a mystery to us. The mystery in the New Testament doesn't mean something mysterious, vague, nebulous, indefinite. No, no. It means something that is inaccessible to the natural mind, but which God in his grace has revealed to the Christian by the Spirit. That's the mystery. It's no longer a mystery to the Christian. He now possesses this understanding. Very well then. And it is because of that that he is interested in these things and wants them. These are the things that he minds. What are they? Well, it's very difficult to know which is the right order, but I'll start from the purely experimental standpoint in order that it may be easier for all of us. They're interested in themselves as souls. Are you interested in yourself as a soul, primarily? Or are you interested in yourself as a member of your profession? or as a husband, or as a wife, or as parents, or as children. Or in what you do, your business, your work, your occupation, your leisure, your interests, your hobbies. What's your view of yourself? How do you think of yourself? What significance do you attach to yourself? Now, you know, the first thing that is true about a Christian is this. He's concerned about his soul. He is concerned about himself as a soul. Nobody else has that interest. But the Christian always has it. You see, that's why I was emphasizing that the Christian is never interested in truth in an abstract manner. Never. I've known men, you know, who've studied and even taught the Bible as if it were Shakespeare. A Christian doesn't do that. A Christian can never be detached and objective. No, no. He's concerned. His soul is in it. He himself is in it always. He's concerned primarily about this soul of his. He's got this living interest in himself as a soul, as a spirit. And then, of course, I hurry on to say this, of course, in relationship to God. This is the this is the Christian supreme interest. God and himself. And the relationship between them. This is the thing that he minds. His mind always comes back to it. This is the center of his life. This is the real soul of his whole being and existence. He does many other things. He's a husband or a wife or a father or a mother or a child. He's a professional man or a man running a business. I know, but they're all on the periphery. This man's center is just this. God and himself. His soul and God and his relationship. You see, this is his interest even in theology. Not as a subject, not as an interest. Phenomena and so on. Conversion, life-changing and all that. Ah, yes, but you see, not in and of itself, but oh, because of this, because of his soul and God. 
Not primarily because he wants to be a better man or a different man, no. But because of this relationship to God. That's the thing. That's the thing that is true in the first instance always about any man who becomes a Christian. He wasn't concerned about this before. He was at enmity against God. The things of God were foolishness to him. Never thought about them. Didn't want to think about them. They were outside him and he was outside them. That's no longer true. He now is in this matter. And of course he's interested in this. As regards his life in the here and now. He wants to be rightly and truly related to God now. And he's ill at ease if anything clouds that or disturbs that. This is the thing, you see, that he minds. This is the thing he's after. This is the thing he's pursuing. His pursuit of God. As Dr. Tozer in America has put it as the title of one of his books, and it's good. The Pursuit of God. This is the thing that the Christian man pursues. He wants this relationship to be right now and in eternity. Indeed, this is so true of this man that we are entitled to say of him that everything else becomes relatively unimportant to him. I don't hesitate to put it as strongly as that. If you cannot say quite honestly, my friend, that everything else becomes relatively unimportant to you by the side of this. I don't see that we have any right to call ourselves Christians. This is the thing, in other words, that establishes that we are Christians. I've seen everything else falling into position because now this is the thing that matters. I am a pilgrim of eternity. My soul goes on. This, I say, is the thing that matters. And if it means that I've got to give up everything else that this may be right, I'll do so. Perish every fond ambition, all I've thought and hoped and known. Yet how rich is my condition, God and heaven are still mine own. Very well, this man, I say, has this at the very center. Have we got this great concern? Can we say tonight that what matters to us above everything else is our soul? Can you say that it matters more to you than your position, than your profession, than your money, than your husband, wife, children, family, prospects, everything else? Does it come first? Our Lord has said that. If any man love father or mother, husband or wife or children, etc., more than me, he is unworthy of me. Very well. Here is the thing, obviously, that's at the center. And this being at the center, this person is aware of and is concerned about his sinfulness. He knows what it is to be in trouble about his soul. He is aware of his weakness. He spends much of his time in thinking about these things. Oh, of course, when he was in the old state, he may in a mechanical manner have got on his knees by the side of his bed at night to say his prayers, but he never stopped to consider his soul and his relationship to God and his eternal destiny, never. He wanted God to bless him. Of course he did. He thought that might help him, so he said his prayers mechanically and may have offered up a few petitions, but he'd never had a concern about himself. 
He never hated himself because of his sin and his failure and his rebellion against God and his lack of love. These things had never concerned him. But you know, a man who is a Christian, not only is concerned about these things, he can't get away from them. They obsess him in a sense. You see, something's happened to this man. The apostle is going on to tell us what it is. But here he's showing us the effects as it were first. He starts with the man in action and in practice in verse 5. And here he is, he says, he minds the things of the Spirit. And what are the things of the Spirit? Well, here it is, you see, the soul and God and the distance between us and our sin and shame and folly and weakness and inability. These are the things that concern this man. He minds them. And then he goes on. For the Spirit doesn't leave a man there. Thank God he doesn't. He starts with us like that, but he doesn't leave us there. The chief work of the Spirit, after all, is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. He shall glorify me, says our Lord about him. That's what he's going to do. He shall glorify me. Let me interject it in brackets as I pass. Beware of regarding anything as the work of the Spirit in you, however striking the phenomena may be, if it hasn't led you to the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that you've never known before. There is an enemy who tries counterfeiting, and he can produce phenomena, but he never leads to the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Spirit has been said to glorify Jesus Christ the Lord, He shall glorify me, and he always leads us to him. The apostle, of course, in that second chapter of 1 Corinthians, makes a very big point of that. He says, you see, about these other people, none of the princes of this world knew. They didn't know him, for had they known him, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't know him. And they didn't know him because they lacked the Spirit. God hath revealed them unto us, By his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. What does he reveal about him? Oh, he reveals his person. The Lord of glory. Here it is. The Christian has no doubt about the person of Jesus Christ. The Spirit has revealed him to him in the depths of his being, his mind, his heart, as the Lord of glory. The Christian is not in trouble about the two natures in the one person. He doesn't understand, but he believes. Nothing else is adequate. He sees he's truly man. He sees equally that he's truly God. He knows that the babe of Bethlehem is the Lord of glory who has come down on earth to dwell. The Spirit has revealed it. There is no difficulty, there is no question in his mind as to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's equally clear about his work. His atoning work, especially. The Christian, you know, has never had any trouble about this. It's the people who bring their natural minds and philosophy to these matters who are in trouble and say they can't understand. And it almost seems immoral to them. Of course it does. The princes of this world didn't know him 
And the preaching of the cross has been foolishness to them always. They've always ridiculed it and they're still doing so. Why? Well, not only because they've never seen themselves as sinners and have never seen the glory and the holiness of God and the need of salvation. They've never had this work of the Spirit in them that opens a man's understanding to see that there is only one way whereby a man can be reconciled to God. And that is that God should lay on him the iniquity of us all and make him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That God should smite him with the stripes that we deserve as the Spirit has revealed through these various writers in the Scripture. The atonement, the work. The Spirit reveals this. Now, the man, I say, who is a Christian, the man who is after the Spirit, you see, he delights in these things. He rejoices in them. These things are not boring to him. They're life to him. He says with Isaac, what's when I survey the wondrous cross? Not a casual glance, now and again at a communion service. He surveys it, he's looking at it, contemplating it, standing in amazement before it, meditating upon it. That's what the he minds these things. That's where he gives his time. That's where his heart is drawn. That's the thing that grips him and moves him, the thing he wants to understand more and more and more and can never understand it sufficiently. He minds it. He's after it. That's been true of Christians throughout the centuries. Thank God it is still true. And in the same way, you see, he's concerned about the way of salvation. We are being told so often today that people are no longer interested in these terms, justification, sanctification. No, no, they say, let's have new translations of the Bible, and they're selling like hot cakes, of course they are. That's the natural mind, you see. When has man ever been interested in justification and sanctification? When has man ever known the meaning of these terms? Never. These are spiritual matters. The trouble with men is not that they don't understand the terminology of the authorized version. That isn't their trouble. It's that they're spiritually dead. Put it in other language to them and it'll still mean nothing to them. They may be interested in it as literature. But this isn't literature. It's the word of God. Here, you see, is something which is only spiritually discerned. And the man who's been convicted by the Spirit and who sees himself as a soul before God, he wants to know how a man can be just with God and reconciled to God. And if there is one thing he rejoices in more than anything, it is justification by faith only. That he doesn't have to get out of this service and go into a monastery or become a monk or a hermit or take up a great scheme of salvation and fasting and penances and this and that. No, no. He believes, and in a moment he can be declared just, reconciled to God. There's nothing so thrilling to him, nothing so marvelous. He sees the romantic element of the gospel coming in, that the fool who came to scoff remained to pray. He glories in it, he rejoices in it, he doesn't stumble, he thanks God for these great resounding terms, and he wants to go on repeating them. Oh yes, he's interested in and fascinated by the terminology of salvation as well as the thing itself, union with Christ. What are you talking about, says the natural man? I don't understand you. Of course he doesn't. How can he? Neither can he, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, as he said it in Romans 8, 7, you remember. 
Neither can he. Of course he can't. Try as he will, he can't. I don't blame the poor men. You see the man who comes to me and says, I see nothing in your New Testament. I'm sorry for him for this reason. He's a man who hasn't been enlightened by the Spirit. But the moment he's enlightened by the Spirit, he'll be very anxious to know what union with Christ means, what sanctification means, and all these glorious terms. Let me hurry on. This, you see, oh, this is the interest of the Christian. These are the things in which he revels, in which he dwells. This is his life, his world, his everything. Communion with God. He's more concerned to have a true and a living and a real communion with God than anything else. There was a time, perhaps, when his supreme ambition was to enter Buckingham Palace or to get into certain select clubs and circles in the city of London, he'd sell them all tonight. If only he could know God in a more intimate manner and have real prayer and fellowship. Is it right, my friends? Am I describing you? This is the man who's after the Spirit. These are the things, you see, that matter to him. He'd sell everything, I say, for just one moment. Of knowing himself dealing with God and God being real to him and a living fellowship. Prayer is a thing that concerns this man. He wants to know more about it. He'd like to pray in a more diligent and in a more thorough manner. And then add to that the fellowship of God's people. We know that we have passed from death to life. Because we love the brethren. Because we are attracted by God's people and like meeting them. And can never meet them too frequently. Yes, we'll let the world go on with its society. Only that we can talk to some simple soul who knows the Lord. And who can tell us about the Lord's dealings with him or with her. We feel the feast is rich. The company is glorious. They're God's children. There's nobody on earth that's like them. We mind these things, these things of the Spirit. It's the Spirit in them, the Spirit in us. Iron sharpeneth iron. These things are calling, the deeps are calling the one to the other. These are the things that this man minds. And then let me add this to it. He is concerned about the whole state of the world. The Christian is interested in the state of the world. He's not only interested in his own soul. It's a libel on us to say we are not interested in the world. Of course we are. But we are not interested as the other man is. He's interested politically, socially and so on. We are interested how? Oh, as we see the world in the grip of the devil. We alone understand what's the matter with the world. We see these powers and principalities, the rulers of the darkness of this world, at the back of the scene and visible phenomena. And we see these poor men trying to deal with it and failing. We know they must fail. They don't see what's at the back of it. We see it in this way. The conflict between heaven and hell. So we have a concern about these things. We have a mind for these things. That's a spiritual concern. We say this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Nothing else will, nothing else can. 
There's no hope of improving the world apart from this, that individuals become Christian. And if large numbers come, you'll have a Christian epoch in your history. So we have an insight and an understanding there that nobody else has. But I mustn't keep you and my time is gone. What I'm really saying, my friends, is this, isn't it? That the man who is after the Spirit minds the things of the Spirit. In other words, this is his book. Here's his interest. Here's his life. Wants to know this, wants to understand it. Oh, yes, and let me repeat, he wants to do that in the right way. There are people, you know, seem to me to be able to gallop through a book of the Bible in one night. That's not doing it in a spiritual manner. I don't want just headings and classifications. The things of the Spirit, the spiritual content, God's mind as it is here. We must get down to these, not just skim lightly over the surface, pass on, done, that book, take up the next. No, no, here are the riches of God's grace and glory and wisdom. And the man who is a Christian is a man who wants to understand in that sense. And not merely to have that superficial academic acquaintance with the mere letter of the scripture. Oh, says the apostle, this is the truth about us. He that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of all men. He has an understanding of all things. The world, as I say, included, nobody understands him. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Listen, we have the mind of Christ. It doesn't mean that we've got it in its fullness, but it means that we've got it as regards order of mind. If you're a Christian, you've got a new mind. You're a new man. You've got a new outlook. You've got a new understanding. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You've got a new desire. Let me be clear, lest I depress some soul in this congregation, or especially some young Christian. I am not asserting that the man who is after the Spirit and who minds the things of the Spirit understands all this fully, 100%, of course not. We see now through a glass darkly. But then face to face. Yes, but this is the thing to emphasize. We do see now. The other men saw nothing. We do see. And though it be through a glass darkly, through a riddle in an enigma, thank God what I see is more value than the whole universe, the entire cosmos. My sight is dim, but thank God for what I am seeing. I am seeing things that I have not seen nor ear heard, things which have not entered into the heart of men, the things which God hath prepared for them, that, for them that love him. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit that is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. My dear friend, I'm not asking, do you see it all in its glory and its absolute perfection? I know you don't. Nobody does. But what I am asking is this. Have you got a taste for these things? At the risk of being misunderstood, I'll even put it like this. Think what you like of me. Have you enjoyed what I've been saying tonight? 
because I venture to assert it in all humility. If you haven't been enjoying what I've been saying tonight, I doubt whether you're after the Spirit at all. But if you can say, well, I don't understand and a lot of it went beyond me, but you know, I feel attracted by those things more than anything else now. That's what I want to know. I wish I knew more. I'm like a newborn babe. I'm desiring the sincere milk of the word that I may grow thereby. All right, my friend. That's all I ask. Have you got a taste for it? Are these the things that are now beginning to hold you and to interest you, to fascinate you, to thrill you more than anything else you've ever known or heard? If so, however young you may be in the faith, however small and weak your faith, however ignorant you may be, I have authority to tell you that you are after the Spirit that you are a child of God and therefore an heir of glory. Amen. O Lord our God, we come again to thee to offer our praise. O Lord, by thy Spirit enable us to praise thee as we ought. Go on, we humbly beseech thee to reveal these things to us more and more by thy blessed Holy Spirit. We realize our utter dependence upon his operations. O Lord, have mercy and enlighten the eyes of our understanding and illumine them. Anoint our eyes with that eye salve, that blessed unction and anointing that we may so see these things, that we shall not only mind them and seek them, but rejoice in them with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. Oh, hear us, as we ask it in the name of thy dear Son. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit Abide and continue with us, now this night, throughout the remainder of this hour, short, uncertain, earthly life and pilgrimage, and until we shall be in glory and see him as he is and be like him forever. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.